We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so last week, uh, I told you that was kind of like our Christmas service, and I got home, and I was like, it's like the one of those moments. It's like, I just didn't want it to end. So I did not plan to preach this message today. I wasn't sure if I'd have enough time to prepare this message today, because I had like three weeks to prepare the last one. So we'll see how this goes. Um, but I'm like, this is, uh, this is another Christmas service, Christmas sermon. Um, and uh, we're in Matthew chapter 2, a very familiar story. And uh, let's just jump into it and see what happens. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So there's the setting, right? The setting is Bethlehem. And... At the time, this is some six miles south of Jerusalem, in the fertile hill country of Judea, cradled between two ridges along the main highway leading from Jerusalem to Egypt. And it went by some different names in the Old Testament a long time ago. Uh, it was called Ephrath or Ephratha, and it's actually referred to that different places, including, most notably, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And eventually the town became known as Bethlehem after the conquest under the armies of Joshua. And Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. Of course, it was Bethlehem that Jacob buried Rachel in, in Genesis chapter 35, 19. In fact, if you're there today in Bethlehem, they'd be more than happy to give you tourists, uh, you know, a tour of where she's supposed to be buried. Of course, Bethlehem was also the place where Ruth met and married Boaz. Do you remember that story? It's where their grandson David grew up and, and tended sheep. And by the time of Jesus' birth, well, it had long been known as the city of David. And of course, the prophet Micah specifically prophesied and promised that the Messiah would come from this small village. And so right here in verse 1, Matthew begins... With Bethlehem as its backdrop, focusing on this group of foreigners showing up, the wise men. And, and notice, notice this. Notice what Matthew does not tell us here in the story. He doesn't tell us about the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in Luke chapter 2. He doesn't tell us about the angel's proclamation of peace on earth. His focus is immediately, immediately on the foreigners of, of all people. That's his focus. This group of foreigners coming from the east to worship Jesus. And, and over the centuries, there's been a lot of misconception uh, and fanciful stories about the identity of the wise men. In fact, during the Middle Ages, legend developed that they were kings and that they were three in number and that their names were Caspar, Baltazar, and Melkor because they were thought to represent the three sons of, of Noah. And one of them is usually pictured as Ethiopian, rather dark-skinned. And in fact, a 12th century bishop of Cologne even claimed to have found their, their skulls. But the truth is, we're not told their number, we're not told their names, we're not even told their means of transportation, usually because it's usually like a camel or something. We're not even told that. We're not even told where they came from exactly, their country or even potential countries that they came from. In fact, the truth is the wise men or magi during this time period usually were involved in various occult practices, actually, including sorcery and especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it's actually from the word magic and magician 
that the terms is magi is derived from. And so the, the wise men, here in, in Matthew's gospel, here in chapter 2, they were, truth be told, students of the stars, experts in astrology. And somehow they managed to deduce that someone significant had been born in Judea, leading them to its capital city, Jerusalem. Now, now how they came to know this information, we are not told, though it's certainly possible that the wise men had been influenced by Judaism, quite possibly even by some of the prophetic writings. That's possible. And if you remember the Babylonian captivity, then it's worth mentioning that, that some of the Jews who were brought up in the Babylonian captivity, who were raised there in Babylon, well, they ended up staying there after their exile, marrying with the people of the East, and it's certainly possible that that alone may have helped contribute to the knowledge that these wise men had attained. And yet, as the great Bible teacher of Geneva, John Calvin, rightly states, the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason, was that God had fortified the minds of the Magi by his Spirit. That's the ultimate reason. And and so, without much of the knowledge of who God even was, the wise men come, the the Magi come, and, and they have come without being given the complete canon of Scripture. They don't have a Bible. They, they come despite having seen the risen Christ. And yet none of that hindered them from coming, from making the journey to find him. And here's what's interesting to me. Somewhere in the United States right now, there's probably three, four, five children under the age of two years old who one day are going to be president of the United States, like right now, somewhere in the country. Four or five little kids, two years of age and under, they're one day going to be president. No one really cares about that. We don't, okay? Uh, No one sets out to find them. No one makes a journey to go, like, honor them. Yet this is exactly what the wise men are doing here in chapter 2. They've come to worship him. They've come to worship him, and they ask in verse 2, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? Do you know? Do, Do you know? Have you heard? Where is he? We're trying to find him. Do you know? And it's interesting because the Greek construction is a present participle. And the reason that's relevant is because it emphasizes continual action. So when it says, where is he who has been, cor- who has been born king of the Jews? They're not just asking the question one time and then moving on to the next verse. Because that's somehow how, sometimes how we read it, right? Read it, move on. Rather, the construction suggests that they went around the entire city asking this question. Whomever they met, have you heard? Do you know this information? We're looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. Because think of it from their point of view as foreigners. Just for one second. They knew of this monumental birth. And they also assumed that anyone in Judea, and certainly in Jerusalem, they definitely know about the baby's whereabouts, right? They show up. And nobody knows. They must have been a little shocked, to say the least, right? They come home on the lunch break. They're like, hey, did you hear? Know how to go, man. Dude, no one knew. Same with me. Nobody knew either. How many people did you ask? You weren't just going around, like, shopping, were you? No, no, no. I really, I asked everybody. Nobody knew. Everybody had the exact same answer. It would have been shocking. We're not even from around here. We don't live here in this country or this city. They've come to worship him. 
And to their discovery, not only are people not worshiping the king, they don't even know what they're talking about. And the truth is, this statement of their intent to worship is very, I think, helpful in discerning to show that these guys were true seekers after God because when he spoke to them in whatever way it was, they heard and they responded. And despite, despite their probably paganism, quasi-science, superstition, they recognized God's voice when he spoke. These guys most likely had very, very limited Bible knowledge But God had already begun this huge work in their life, evident by their desire to worship the king. And and I think that is really, really encouraging. I think it's super encouraging. God can do that for a bunch of pagan foreigners, the wise men? That means he can also do that for your most hard-hearted family members and friends. And so verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2 When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 3 introduces the villain of the story. And I love villains. They make everything more interesting. I like villains from like a gospel point of view. Not that like, don't don't quote me. Someone's like, I'm sending that the news in advance right now. Verse 3 introduces the, the, the Herod as the villain of the story. Herod, this Herod right here, he's known as Herod the Great. And I say that because in the Bible, I didn't know this for the longest time, I thought whenever I talked about Herod, it's the same guy. Actually not. Tons of different Herods in the Bible. This is the first guy that's mentioned with the name Herod, and he goes by the Great. Herod the Great. And in fact, Julius Caesar had appointed his father, Antipater, to be the governor of Judea during the Roman occupation. And then Antipater managed to have his son, Herod, appointed as prefect of Galilee. Some things don't ever change, right? Just like today, politicians manage to get their sons appointed different positions. This is exactly what Herod the Great's dad did, Antipater. And Herod was really successful in this role. Uh, He helped to quell the Jewish uh, guerrilla fighters who continued to fight against the the Romans. But then in 40 BC, the the Parthians invaded, and and Herod and his whole family, they had to flee the country, makes their way back to Rome. And then in 40 BC, Herod the Great was declared by Octavian and Antony, with the concurrence of the Roman Senate, to be king of the Jews. And with their help, Herod then goes and invades Palestine the next year. And after several years of fighting, he drives out the Parthians, he establishes his rule. And understand, this guy that's introduced, Herod the Great, he's only king because of the deals that he made with the Romans. That's it. He wasn't even actually Jewish. Herod was Idumean. That is, he was ethnically an Edomite. Esau, Edomite. Esau, grandfather. That's his ethnicity. And so... To shore up his position, he marries a Jewish girl. This heiress to the Jewish Hasmonean house in order to make himself more acceptable to the Jews. Herod the Great, listen, he was clever, he was capable, he was a warrior, he was an orator, he was a diplomat. He's usually best known for his real estate projects. He built theaters, racetracks, other structures to provide entertainment for the people. In 19 BC, Herod began the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He revived Samaria and built the beautiful port city of Caesarea in honor of his benefactor, Caesar Augustus. He built the fortress of Masada, 
may know in 73 AD, thousand Jewish defenders committed suicide at that fortress he built rather than being captured by the Roman general Flavius Silva. But there was another side to Herod, as is the case with many leaders who gain power. You see, it's one thing to gain power, it's a whole other thing to hold power, which is why you don't typically hear news or read articles about retired dictators. Not a lot of retired dictators. Oh, did you hear in the paper? So-and-so, yeah, he, he retired last week. That doesn't usually happen. Because once you get on the tiger, metaphorically speaking, near impossible to get off the tiger without the tiger eating you. Dictators don't typically retire, regardless of what century you live in. And the truth is, for Herod, he knows that he has to stay in power. He can't lose control of the empire that he's built. And for that reason, he was also remembered as one of the cruelest leaders in Judea. Merciless, jealous, superstitious, paranoid of losing power. In fact, at one point, he had the high priest, Aristobulus, who actually happened to be his wife's brother, had him drowned. Then, after he has him drowned, has a big, big funeral, pretends to weep, pretends to feel bad. But that wasn't the end. Later on, his wife that he married, because remember, he's not Jewish, to shore up kind of his favor with the people, yeah, he had her killed. And then her mother, and then his son, and then his second son, and then his third son. This guy is killing everybody. I mean, they'll probably make it into a movie or TV show one day, just killing everybody. And then shortly before his own death, he had the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned. Because he knew, no one's going to be sad when I die. No one's going to mourn my death. And so what he did is he gave the order. The moment he died, all those distinguished citizens would also be put to death as well, so that there would be mourning. This is Herod the Great. The culmination of his savagery came, of course, in Matthew chapter 2.16, when he had all the little baby boys, two years of age and under, executed. So you can imagine his feelings now in this situation, now that we've gotten to know Herod. The paranoia, the jealousy, when the wise men show up and suggest there might be a rival claim to his position and authority. So what does Herod do? Notice his response. The text tells us he was troubled. The response of Herod, quite the opposite of the response of the Magi, the wise men. Whereas the wise men, they rejoice at hearing Jesus' birth. When Herod hears it, he's troubled. The king's anxiety is not hard to understand, especially in light of the intense jealousy and paranoia. Any mention of another king of the Jews sent him into a frenzy of fear and anger. And Matthew tells us it was not just Herod who was troubled, rather all Jerusalem with him. And that statement's a little interesting. Why? Why is Jerusalem concerned? We get why Herod is, but why Jerusalem? Matthew's statement about Jerusalem is probably best understood that their concern was not directly about the Magi, but about Herod's response and reaction. They, they knew from experience that Herod was easily agitated, and that usually potentially meant maniacal behavior. 
that could easily result in bloodshed. Herod was unstable. Herod was unpredictable. And Jerusalem knew if Herod is, is feeling stressed out about this, that could potentially end in terrible suffering for the city. And so verse 4, here's what Herod does. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he inquired of them, key word, where the Christ was to be born. He gets all the religious leaders together. He's got to figure this out. He's not going to be able to sleep until he figures this out. And this reference to all the chief priests, well, all the chief priests, they would have been of the tribe of Levi. More particularly, descendants of Aaron, the first high priest. And in some ways, priests in this day and age, they were like the Magi. They were like the wise men, having considerable political as well as religious power. And among the chief priests, you had, well, you were supposed to have one high priest. According to the Old Testament law, you only had one high priest at a time. He served a life position, and his special unique duty was going into the Holy of Holies once a year, Day of Atonement, offering a sacrifice for the people. But by the time of the New Testament, this position essentially was based upon political favoritism. You could even buy it. And high priests were often appointed, removed on the whim of various rulers, whoever was going to pay more to have that position. Of course, if you were removed, you could still have the title, and you could have the prestige that came with it. And these guys were also part of the Sanhedrin. You just see how terribly corrupt this whole system is. The Sanhedrin was this combined sort of Senate Supreme Court. It was made up of 70 of the Jewish religious leaders. It was just totally corrupt, religiously oriented politicians. That's it. But these are the guys he, he asked to come see him, as well as the scribes. They're a little bit different. The scribes were primarily Pharisees. They were the subject matter experts of the law. These guys also, also referred to as the lawyers. They were the Bible professors. They were the guys who knew the answers. If you had a question about it, they had considerable prestige among the Jews. They were recognized as the key scholars of religious Judaism. Very theologically conservative. But they also tended to be very legalistic and strict in both the ceremonial and moral laws. These are the guys where if Jesus would do a miracle and he'd heal somebody, and everyone would be like, oh, this is amazing, heal somebody. Like, yeah, he should have waited till tomorrow because it's a Sabbath day. So, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, these are these guys. And so he calls them, verse 5. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where. Herod wants to know where? In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd. That word also means rule. My people Israel. He calls them and he wants to know where. So that was their response. They come and they give Herod the answer. And they give him the answer because they know the answer. And yet they show, notice, they show no special interest in the answer. They know the answer, but they show no special interest in the answer, let alone the fact there's a group of people that have provoked this situation, these wise men who were there, who said they saw a star in the east. No concern over that. No, hey, can we talk to the wise men for a second? Tell us more about that. None of that. You think they would, but they don't. So they supply him with the answer. And the, the answer comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Where? Herod wants to know where. Bethlehem. That's where. Give Herod the answer. Bethlehem. And I love how Piper points out this. 
What if Herod had asked them, not just where, but what if Herod had asked them who? What if he had asked them who? They might have kept reading in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and explained that this king who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. If, if he had asked him who, they might have kept reading and heard that this king shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. If he had asked who, they may have kept reading even further in Micah 5 and heard that this king would ensure that his people dwell secure and that this king would be great to the ends of the earth. See, so many people today ask the wrong questions. They don't bother to ask the right questions. So many people today are distracted during the Christmas season by things that really aren't all that important. Herod asked the question, where? When he should have been asking the question, who? Who is this coming king? Because he would have learned by asking that question that Jesus isn't an ordinary king. As the prophet Micah reminds us, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Or as John's gospel tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the self-existent King who has always been. And I suppose what is so sad is that these wise men had much lesser knowledge of God than the Jewish leaders. And yet what they did know, they believed and they followed. The Jewish leaders, they they had the letter of God's word, which judges those who know it, but don't accept it. And there are some people who are like Herod, who are immediately hateful, and they want nothing to know of God's way, except how do I attack it? How do I destroy it? And there's others like the chief priest and the scribes, and they pay such little attention, such little attention for God and his word. At most, they give lip service so they can check a box and say a prayer and give some money, or maybe out of obligation, they'll go to church during the Christmas or Easter season, and they simply go through the motions. And eventually, the second group inevitably joins the first group because indifference to God is simply hatred that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. And others, however, like the Magi from the East, accept the Lord when he comes to them. And they believe, and they obey, and they worship, and they live. you got to see the difference. You have to see the difference. And when Herod summoned the wise men, verse 7, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, Herod summons the wise men secretly to ascertain what time the star had appeared. His concern? For the time. For the star's appearance. Not its meaning. Not its significance. Not its relevancy. He wants to know the timeline. Of course, knowing the timeline is going to help set him up for verse 16 to indicate how old the child might be. The child that he sees as a threat to himself. And so it says in verse 8, and... He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, 
bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Some of you guys know people like Herod. We're not told what the wise men said to Herod. They, they had no way of knowing his wicked intent. They, they simply proceeded to Bethlehem to worship the king. In verse 9, And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, behold, the star, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. How did the star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? Well, it does not say that it led them or even went before them. It only says that they saw a star in the east. That's verse 2, and came to Jerusalem. So, so how did the star go before them in this five, six-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? As verse 9 says, how did it stand over the place where the child was? The answer is, we don't know. Piper points out there are many different attempts to explain it in terms of conjunctions or planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights. We just don't know. We don't. And that's okay. That's okay that we don't know. Because knowing how it happened isn't the point in the story. The point is God is guiding foreigners to worship Christ. And he is doing it by exerting global influence and power. Something that Luke painstakingly shows us. In Luke chapter 2, we were just there last week, God exerts his power and his sovereignty over the entire Roman Empire so that the census comes at the exact time to get a virgin to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. Luke's point, God influences emperors and empires. Matthew's point here in chapter 2, God controls the positioning of stars and their placement in the galaxy to get foreign wise men to Bethlehem so they can worship him that's the story of the Magi. Pretty cool, huh? And when they saw the star, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice how they respond. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced. They were glad. They were happy. Do you, do you understand those words? Do you? Because we throw them around so often sometimes without actually engaging our senses. You may have read this verse before. They were glad. Next verse. Hold on a second. Do you see that? We do that sometimes. We'll just read over words without letting them engage our senses. And at times, because we do that, they feel misplaced and odd in the descriptions of spiritual encounters. But that's what's happened. That's what's happened. They rejoice. They rejoice exceedingly. Oh, that God would give us that sort of experience and those sort of feelings right now. Some of you, like every time you open your Bible the last week, it's just words on a page. You don't feel anything. You felt so dry the last month. You read words like they rejoice exceedingly. And you're like, I don't get it. I don't feel it. What do you do? You pray. God, 
May I encounter you in such a way that I might say with the Magi, like, like, we're happy, we're glad, our hearts are full right now. Or as Charles Wesley would say in his classic Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. You say that. You sing that. You pray that. I think for far too many Christians during the season of Advent as the build-up, the great crescendo that is the birth of Christ, just going through the motions. We heard the wise men's story before. And so it's in one ear and it's out the other. And we don't feel anything. The wise men were overcome. Oh, that God would help us to experience our theology. Well, verse 11 says this, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Matthew is very, very careful to emphasize that the wise, the magi, they worship the child. Not his mother. They worship the child. Not his mother. He points out that they brought three gifts. Three gifts. And the gifts were an expression of their worship. Their gifts were an expression of their worship given out of the overflow of adoration and grateful hearts. Let's put this in perspective. Right worship is always and must be the only basis for right giving. You catch that? They come to worship and in the process, yes, they give gifts. But if you don't have right worship, you can't have right giving. If you don't have right worship, all you have is dutiful, obligatory giving. That's the type of giving that you have. And that type of giving isn't actually giving at all. And so they give these gifts. And I've heard sermons... It will sometimes try to create special meaning for each of the gift. Gold, it actually was symbolic. It meant this. Frankincense, it meant this symbolically. Myrrh, like it meant this symbolically. But I think all of that misses the bigger point in the principle. Or as Mr. Piper would say, by giving to God what he does not need and what I might enjoy. I am through my action saying, God, you are my treasure, not these things. That's what it means to worship God with gifts of gold and frankincense or myrrh. That's what it means to worship God with euros or pounds or dollars. Right worship is always and must be the only basis for right giving. And right worship reveals what we treasure the most in this life. And so it says in verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God orients the stars in the galaxy to bring foreigners, guys, foreigners from distant lands to come and worship him. That's God's design. He did it then. He still does it. His aim is that the nations would worship his son. That's God's will. 
that the nations would worship his son. The unsaved people that you work with in your classes, in your neighborhood, and in your family. See, the story of the wise men presents us with two kinds of people who do not want to worship Jesus. The first kind is the people who simply do nothing about Jesus, like the chief priests and the scribes. They hear the wise men are there, that they've been given a sign, that Herod needs an answer, and then it's back to business as usual. But that's the problem. When, when you hear news like this, when you hear good news like this, you can't go back to business as usual because this type of news is life-changing. The chief priests and the scribes, they remind me of a bunch of college students. Some of you guys might know what that's like. <laughs> they hit the snooze button and they go back to sleep. They're not interested because for them, God is an inconvenience. And so they give Herod the rehearsed Sunday school Bible answer and then they shrug their shoulders, they yawn, and without any view of the magnitude of what's actually happening, it's back to the party. It's back to opening up the presents, back to their daily lives. I've got family members like this, guys. Family members who have grown up in the church, and the only special part of Christmas is the extra alcohol they get to consume without being judged. Oh, they can give you a Sunday school answer. Like the scribes. And it's just back to watching the football game as if nothing significant has happened. For many people today, Jesus just sort of gets in the way of Christmas. He's a nuisance that, that shows up throughout the month of December. And let me be clear about one thing. If Jesus gets in the way of your Christmas, or if Jesus has talked about too much at Christmas dinner, then you don't know him well at all. But that's the problem with the world. Or as the great C.S. Lewis would remind us, we're like a bunch of kids. The world. They're like a bunch of kids. They're, they're playing in the ghetto, making mud pies, and they have no idea what it means to take a holiday out at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased by the things that don't even compare to knowing Christ. We're far too easily pleased and we're far too hostile and threatened like Herod because Jesus, he means change and Jesus means walking away from sin and Jesus means total allegiance to himself. And one of the saddest, I think one of the saddest things during the Christmas season is to see so many people ignore Christ. And what, and what really should be, it really should be this experience of great joy, like the wise men, exceedingly great joy. And yet Christmas misses the mark in the hearts and minds of millions of people. And I think what makes it even sadder is that the millions of people, many of these that I'm referring to, are people who know, people that have heard, people who just really don't care, like the religious leaders. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, human History is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And you see it every Advent. 
You see it every December. And yet, despite the hardness of so many hearts, God's heart is motivated in such a way to seek out people who are going to worship him. That's, that's John 4.23. That's what John 4.23 reminds us. That's why I love John 4.23. He's seeking out people. That's, that's what he's doing. God is seeking for people. God is searching for people who will come to worship him, not ignore him, not be inconvenienced by him, but will who come like the wise men did so long ago. That's what gives me hope. When I think about my family members, when I think about my dad, and my cousins. And that's if God can do this for the Magi, and he can do it for anyone. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. God, I thank you for the hope-filled story of the wise men of Matthew chapter 2. To see a, a bunch of pagan foreigners be guided sovereignly by your hand because they see a star that you have specifically placed in the galaxy for them. That's hope for even the most hard-hearted family members that we have to the gospel. To see how you guided these men to come and worship your son. And my prayer is, Lord, for our friends and for our family that you might sovereignly do the same. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.